Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome once again to Chatham Community Church. My name is uh, Jaime. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, I'm glad you're here this morning. Uh, Welcome, especially for those of you who haven't been with us in a while or for whom this is your first time with us. Uh, I hope you have a great experience this morning that you're able to connect with God and connect with the people around you. Uh, At the end of the service, I'd love to say hi to you, hear a little bit more about your story, how you ended up in Chatham County, and how you found us. So I'll be under the exit, not sign, under the emergency exit lights there at the back. So come say hi. Uh, And particularly if you've not gotten one of our welcome gifts, uh, please grab one on the way out. Uh, I've said this uh, numerous times. In fact, I had to convince someone a few weeks ago to take one. Uh, This is a way in which we support local businesses. We have a gift in the bag that that comes from a local business. And uh, you taking them gives us an excuse to support them even more. So please, if you've not grabbed one, please uh, grab one on your way out and stop and say hi. Um, well, before we sort of dig into the sermon for this morning, uh, I just want to acknowledge that uh, there is an area in our world where things are uh, particularly tense right now, and, and uh, there's pain and suffering and death uh, in the country of Ukraine right now. And um, there is a town, a port city, just on the southwestern coast there called Odessa. And uh, at some point in the 20th century, uh, a man named Moish, uh, I don't know his last name because we're pretty sure he changed it when he got to Ellis Island, uh, left that area and made his way to America. And um, a few, a century later, here I am. Uh, so um, we don't know if we have any family left in that area. He left under nefarious circumstances, and so um, we might, we might not. But uh, but it's been on my heart this this week, and uh, I know it's been on many of your hearts. You've reached out to us, you've asked us what we can do, and so uh, what I'd like to do this morning is just spend a, a, a moment praying, praying for Ukraine, praying for the folks there. Um, we have sisters and brothers. Even if we don't know anyone there, we have sisters and brothers in, in that area. And so we want to pray. So let's, would you join me in prayer? Spirit, we talked a few weeks ago about how you are in each of us that call on your name. And so the same spirit that is in us here this morning is in sisters and brothers in the Ukraine who are worried about whether today might be their last day this side of heaven. Lord, I know they have hope. They have hope that this life is not the end. And yet, Lord, we pray for protection. Lord, your scripture calls you the Prince of Peace. And boy, is that desperately needed in Ukraine right now. We pray for peace. We pray that where the uh, mechanisms and machine of war and aggression and violence is advancing, that you would confuse those who are advancing those agendas and those gears of war would grind to a halt. Lord, that people would lay down their arms and turn back. Lord, there is a lot that is going on there. It is very complicated, but what I know is that there is so much, what I can tell, there is so much that is not marked by love right now. And so I pray that for everyone who has a say in how this goes, an overwhelming conviction of your love would come on them. That it would come upon them. That it would call them to repentance for ways in which they are acting unjustly. And Lord, would there be peace 
and there be love, and there be a supernatural resolution to this event. And Lord, open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts, and our wills, if there are other ways that we can partner with you, your spirit, uh, and everyone else in that area. We pray in your son's mighty name. Amen. joining me in praying uh, for that and I ask that you continue to pray. Um, you know, that, that stuff in the news, uh, it sort of brought to mind, uh, as I, especially as I was thinking about this sermon, a miniseries that was on HBO a few years ago called Chernobyl uh, and it is focused on the events leading up to and after uh, the 1986 nuclear disaster at the, at, in Chernobyl. And in the first episode, there are a number of scenes that feature uh, someone portraying a man named Anatoly Dyatlov. He's a real person, or was a real person, and he was the deputy chief engineer of the plant. And in a number of scenes, over and over again, you see Dyatlov fail to process and fail to acknowledge the signs and the evidence that are in front of him indicating that a catastrophe has occurred. Uh, whether it's taking instrument readings at face value, even though the instrument has maxed out. Now, that max was a safe range, but not saying, it's maxed out. Maybe more is going on. No, he just takes it up. Well, that's the reading. It must be okay. Or you see him advancing or, or putting forth protocols to respond to a situation that isn't what his employees or what his staff are telling him is going on. There's even a scene where someone who has seen uh, evidence on the ground that points to there being a nuclear accident happening, he's saying that, and the outlaw turns to him and says something akin like, you can't have seen that because that didn't happen. You can't have seen that because it's not there, even though he hadn't been on the ground. He hadn't been there. See, he, along with many others, rejected the idea. They rejected the possibility that a nuclear disaster could happen. That's just part, or it flowed from uh, a Soviet doctrine of excellence, a Soviet doctrine of this is enough, this is right, we are strong. But being holding on to that made them unable to acknowledge and unable to respond to a crisis, a problem, opposition that was clearly there. And it cost lives. It cost lives. See, when we're taught, or when we believe, that there are only certain kinds of problems, or certain kinds of challenges, or certain kinds of adversity, or certain kinds of opposition, or certain sources from which those things can come from, if something arises that doesn't quite fit one of those boxes, that doesn't quite align with those things, we risk you run the risk of failing to recognize that there is a challenge, that there is opposition, that there is adversity, that there is a problem in front of us. And we may not be equipped to deal with it. Or we may not realize that we actually are equipped to deal with it because we fail to recognize it there. And so we end up struggling. We end up getting caught unaware in fact, sometimes we end up not even recognizing that there is a problem until it is too late. We end up taking things at face value and we end up hurting for longer than we need to. We're in the third week of a series that we've titled Holy Spirit, 
presence, power, and purpose. And we've acknowledged already that the Holy Spirit is often not talked about and often misunderstood. Sometimes he's treated like a junior member of the Trinity, maybe seen as like a force, when in reality, the Holy Spirit is as much God as the Father, and as much God as Jesus Christ the Son. As much God as those, as those two as well. The Holy Spirit is a person that dwells in each and every one who calls upon the name of Jesus as Lord and Savior. His presence is in us. We have access to his power, and he works his purpose in and through us for the good of the world and for the good of us. And last week, we talked about the Spirit's role in our lives, and particularly his transforming work in us. And today, today we are going to talk about the connection that the Holy Spirit has uh, to us being able to recognize and engage with adversity, with opposition, uh, with problems that we encounter, which is particularly crucial when opposition comes cloaked as benign, when adversity comes cloaked as actually a blessing or a good thing, when it is hard to tell. Now, the Bible talks about three sources, or three places of origin for opposition, or for adversity. Now, some people might say, well, the origin of all opposition and all adversity is sin. And I'll concede that there is a way to make that argument, but I think it's a little bit too reductive to say that it's just sin, because most people equate sin with things that an individual does, and I think that just doesn't capture all of it. The Bible talks about three sources or origins of adversity. It talks about external sources of adversity or external origins of adversity. The word that the Bible uses to talk about this is the word the world. So oftentimes you'll hear things like the world in the Bible. These are external sources. They are systems. They are structures. They are ideologies. They are movements. They are arguments that bring with them adversity that bring with them or carry with them opposition to God's good will. But they can't be narrowed down to one action or something that a person does. Things like slavery and human trafficking, these are things that, yes, involve people doing wrong things, but also involve a whole set of ideologies, of ways of thinking that justify those things. So you have to, there was both the actions that people took, but also the ideologies behind that, that is the world. There's also an internal origin of opposition or adversity. The word that the scripture uses to talk about this is the flesh. Right? You and I have inclinations. We have thoughts. We have feelings. Uh, we have proclivities. We have desires. And we take actions that aren't good for us. And we take actions that aren't good for others. They oppose what is good. They oppose what is from God. And then... There is a spiritual source for opposition in adversity. When the Bible talks about this, one of the words it uses most often is the devil, or the evil one. There are spiritual forces of evil at play in our world that seek to sabotage the good work of God and God's people. So the world, the flesh, and the devil is a theological category that people use to talk about sources of oppositions. Now, one or more of these sources might be hard for you to grasp, or hard for you to accept. It might be hard for us to accept or consider. But if we don't at least entertain 
the idea that all of these, in some form or another, that one of these might be the source, or might be a legitimate source of opposition or adversity or of challenge. We run the risk of failing to recognize, of failing to acknowledge that something that is coming our way is actually opposed to God's good will, to God's good purpose, to God's blessing. And then we might not know how equipped we are to deal with every opposition, with every adversity, with every challenge. And this is especially key when they come cloaked as good, when they are appealing or they are tempting. Because here's the thing, friends. Because the Holy Spirit is in us, through the Holy Spirit, we actually are equipped to recognize and meet opposition and adversity on all fronts and from every source. Because the Holy Spirit is in us, we are able to recognize and meet adversity and opposition on all fronts and from every source. So let's see what that looks like. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 4. Uh, if you're looking at your Bible uh, and you're sort of going from start to finish, the first time you stumble across John will be the Gospel of John. You've got to keep going. A little further ahead than that, the Gospel of John is John's account of Jesus' life. We're going a little further than that, uh, towards the latter half of the New Testament. There is something that says 1 John, that is 1 John. Go there, we're going to be at chapter 4. If you don't have access to a Bible, we're going to put it on the screen in just a second, and we're going to read verses 1 through 6 of 1 John 4. So here we go. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them. Because, great, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. I almost sang the song right there. They are from the world and, before, and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. And whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Now, 1 John is something called an epistle. An epistle is just uh, a, a word that means a letter. So when we read the, the letters, particularly this one from John, and it's also true of 2 John and 3 John, his second and third letters, we're getting one side of a conversation. Now, these letters are somewhat uh, distinct from other letters in the New Testament because there is nothing that identifies a clear audience for the letter. So if you go to the letter to the Ephesians, which we believe Paul wrote, it is very clear that Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus, because it says so. <laughs> and there are indicators in the letters that tell you who the uh, initial intended audience was. And this was like the community of churches, but that's not true for the letters of John, and so they're thought to be universal or general letters. What that means is that their distribution was wider, might have been wider than just one Christian community. They were passed around a good bit. And so these might be, or likely, John's words to a broad Christian community. So he paints with broader strokes. And based on what he writes and what we know about the context, we can get a sense 
of what he's responding to, what's on the other side of the conversation. And that is particularly important if we are going to parse out what John means when he says spirits. Because how you interpret this passage has a lot to do with what you think he's referring to when he says spirit, what he might mean by the word spirit. So here's some of the things that are going on in the Christian communities, both from what John is writing and from the broader context. One is there is external resistance and hostility that the church is encountering. Throughout that first century, they are facing resistance from Jewish communities. They are being, they are being kicked out of synagogues and denied access to the temple. There is resistance to this teaching of Jesus. They are also encountering resistance in non-Jewish communities, uh, particularly as their gods are being challenged by this doctrine of Jesus. And there is beginning to emerge and will continue to develop strong opposition and eventual persecution, if it's not going on here already, from the Roman Empire. Now let me be clear. There are people who are becoming followers of Jesus from all these sources. From all these sources. But there is also opposition and hostility that they are also encountering. There's also internal sabotage. Now the, the, the phrase false prophets is a good key to this. Uh, there is teaching that is being brought into these communities that is not in accordance with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now this is, these are new communities that are being formed in highly distributed areas, and so people are coming by, doctrine is still coalescing, and there are people who are taking advantage of that, and sort of leading people astray. And there's also people's sin. Some of the letters talk about how people's own proclivities to do what is unloving, what is self-serving, is eroding the strength of the community. So there is internal sabotage as well. And there's also the work of the evil one. Jesus in the Gospels encounters people who are influenced by the forces of the evil one. Cast that out. Throughout the, uh, the book of Acts, which tells the story of the early church, they continue to encounter the spiritual forces of the evil one. As the kingdom of light advances, the kingdom of Jesus advances and makes inroads into different places and into people's lives, the kingdom of darkness tries to oppose. The kingdom of darkness tries to keep ground that it has taken. Now, which one of these might be covered by the word spirit? Well, I think there's a way that all of them might be covered by the word spirit. If you, some people would think that spirit might be sort of the, the nexus, the origin, the driving force behind something. The driving force behind something might be external. The drive, an ideology. The driving force behind something might be someone's internal proclivities. The driving force behind something might be an evil spiritual force. Now, I think that John's use of the word spirit most closely aligns to an evil spiritual force, but the way he writes this section, the way he talks about false prophets, I think gives ground to covering all three. John, I think, is being general, so that we can cover every source of spiritual, every source of opposition. Not just the spiritual, but also the internal and the external. And here's why that I think that's key. Because all of those are still present. All of those sources of opposition for Christian communities, or just for people in general, are still present. There is still 
external opposition. Maybe not to the degree, at least in, in every place like it was in the first century, but we still encounter communities who reject the message and who are hostile towards the good will of God. There are still systems and structures that are not welcoming of the Spirit of God, the Word of God. There is still internal opposition. I don't know about you, but I still want to sin every once in a while. I still have desires, inclinations, and proclivities that are not in accordance with God's good will for my life or for your lives. It still happens. And there are still people who try to get one over on Christians by bringing in a teaching that is convenient and easy, but false. That is appealing, but false. It's still present. And, and, the evil one is still at work in our world. The evil one is still at work in our world. And that last one, I find, is hardest for people to engage with at least on this side of the Atlantic, and particularly in this country. So why? Why do we find it difficult to accept the existence or the work of the evil one? And I don't mean theoretically, right? I mean actively. Why do we find it difficult to exist that the evil one might still be at work? Here's an answer. We are still steeped in modernity. We are steeped in modernity. What do I mean when I say modernity? I mean everything that came after the Middle Ages, particularly the cultural norms, the ideologies, uh, the attitudes and practices that gained steam post-Middle Ages, and particularly in light of the Renaissance. Now I know, that's like, wow, that's a long time ago. How are we still steeped in that? But most people believe that we didn't enter a postmodern era until about 40 to 50 years ago. So these ideas had staying power. These ideas and cultural norms had staying power. And even though we might be in a postmodern era now, ideas that were around for 400 years are hard, are hard to kick off. They've influenced every sphere. Theologist, theologian Thomas Oden uh, writes that one of the values of, mo of modernity is a reductive naturalism. What he means by that is that it reduces what is reliably known to what one can see, what one can hear, and what one can empirically investigate. Pause. That sounds like science. I am not opposed to science, and the church is not opposed to science. Let me just say that as a disclaimer right now before anyone gets any ideas. I am not opposed to that. But the effect that that reductive naturalism has had on the church and continues to have on people of faith is that we've created a dualism where there isn't one. We've, we've, we're willing, especially for people of faith, to accept that there is a transcendent world beyond ours. Right? That there's God, that there's the heavens, that there's hell, maybe. Some of us think, who knows? Some of us are willing to consider it. Maybe that there is a devil. He's somewhere else. God is sitting up on his throne, distant from us. And of course, we can accept that there's an empirical world. We see it, we touch it, we feel it, we can uh, quantify it. But we have a hard time accepting that middle area. It's so prevalent that it has a name. It's called the flaw of the excluded middle. I told you we'd be doing a little bit more teaching during this series, so there you go. We've already got modernity, Thomas Oden, naturalism, 
the flaw of the excluded middle. And so we have a hard time accepting that those two can meet in the middle. Now, some of us are willing to accept the good things that happen in the middle. We're willing to consider that God might heal someone. Right? That is an overlap between the transcendent and the empirical, or the natural. We're willing to consider that. But man, when it comes to the work of the evil one, whoo, that's a little bit harder. That's a little bit harder. We have a hard time accepting that there might be evil spirits at work. And here's why I think that this is hard because we are steeped in modernity. Because that's not true in other parts of the world. In parts of the world that aren't as steeped in modernity as we are, people do not have a hard time believing that there are evil spirits at work. Because they see it. They have a category for it. So they, when they encounter it, they're able to recognize it. I don't think that it's that it happens less in our Western world or in the places that are steeped in modernity. I think we just don't have a category for it. So when it happens, we just don't have eyes to see. We write it off. Now, it would be tempting to say, well, those, peop those people in other places are just primitive. They don't know as much as we do. That's snobbery. That's, that's intellectual snobbery. It's there. Not only is it there, but all throughout church history, it is there. They talk about it. They talk about the work, uh, the spiritual forces of evil. I don't think it stopped just because we moved into the Renaissance and post-Renaissance era. I think we just decided that we weren't going to see it anymore. And so we find ourselves ill-equipped to deal with it. We find ourselves ill-equipped to recognize it. We misdiagnose or we accept things as if they're good when they're not. They actually come or are part of the forces of the evil one. Now, when I teach about this, or when I talk about this, I need to caution people against extremes. So here's the extremes I want you to avoid in light of this. I want you to avoid the usual suspects extreme. The usual suspects has a great, great line that says, the greatest trick the devil, ever, the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. So for some of us, I need us to move away from the extreme that there is no work of the evil one in the world. Maybe for some of you, that's the only step you can take today. You're not ready to diagnose anything, but you are at least willing to consider that that statement, right, that he doesn't exist, and isn't at work, isn't real. Good. Please move away from that extreme. But don't go to the other extreme. This is the church lady extreme from Saturday Night Live. This was a character played by Dana Carvey, who whenever something would happen, would say, could it be Satan? <laughs> and so everything is the devil. Everything is not the devil. All right? When we say things like that, we give the devil way more power than he actually had. The devil is not omniscient, doesn't know everything. The devil is not omnipresent, can't be everywhere. The devil is not omnipotent, can't do everything. Now, there are lots of other spiritual forces or, or, or fallen angels or demons, if you want to use that sort of language. It's possible that those are at work, but they are not behind everything. Remember, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The devil is just one-third of that. I don't know that it's proportional, but there you go. So avoid the extremes, please. Now, with all those sources of evil, with all those sources of opposition, with all those sources or origin for adversity, both in the first century and today, it is easy to despair, especially for a small Christian community in the first century. It is easy to feel that we are being surrounded, that we're fighting on all fronts. What can we do? They are a small and relatively new movement. They are likely feeling the weight. There is concern, particularly as they're seeing people in their community be taken out of their community by these false spirits 
or by these false prophets, there seems to be confusion. There seems to be confusion. They need to be able to tell what is from God and what is not from God. And that is true for us today. No matter what gets thrown at us or what comes our way or what we consider, we need to be able to tell what is from God and what is from not. And that is where the Spirit comes in. Because what was true then is true now. And that's that the Holy Spirit enables and equips us to be able to tell what is true from what is counterfeit. Not just what is, what is easily identifiable as evil, but what is just close enough to good to confuse us. What is just close enough to good to confuse us. The Holy Spirit enables and equips us so that nothing that is not from God can get past us. That's part of why he's called the Spirit of Truth. The Spirit of Truth. He doesn't just enable us to tell what is evil. He enables us to tell what claims to be good, but isn't. But isn't. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Truth. Now, John is not just communicating information to them. The tone that he's writing is a tone of encouragement. It's a tone of comfort. It is a tone of, 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 of um, just being with them. It's almost as if he's saying, be at peace. God does not leave us in confusion. Because they're experiencing confusion. They're, they're seeing their sisters and their brothers go in one direction and go in another, be swayed by one teaching, be swayed by another, by one spirit or another, and they're wondering, what do we do? Where do we go? What is right? And John tells them, the spirit is with you. Be at peace. God has not abandoned you in confusion. Maybe some of us need to hear that word. Maybe with all the information we're receiving, or all the ideologies we're considering, or all the paths we're undertaking, or the paths that we are before us, we are feeling a weight of uncertainty. Which path is good? Which ideology should I accept? Which thought should I consider? Which action should I take? And it might feel overwhelming. You might be confused, because so many of them seem good, but there's something in you that says, maybe not entirely. The Spirit is in you. The Spirit is in you. Be at peace. God is not a God of confusion. God does not leave us to be confused and to figure it out. And here's what John tells them to do. He tells them to test the spirits. Test the spirits. Test the spirits. He tells them to test whatever comes their way, whether it's a teaching or whether it's a spiritual voice claiming to be from God or whether it's an inclination in themselves to test, to actually run it through something. And what's the test? The test is to acknowledge, to confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Now, this might feel like that's it, but this is a profound theological statement. It was incredibly profound in the first century, and even though we sometimes think that Christ is Jesus' last name, it is still a profound statement today. Part of what it's acknowledging uh, is even in the name, the terminology, Jesus, which means the one who saves, that there is a Savior, 
that Christ, he is the Messiah, he is God's anointed, has come. That the, that the anointed one of God has come to rescue a people who need rescuing. He has come. He has come, he has made a historic appearance, an appearance at a point in history. He is real. And he has come in the flesh. Now, during that time, there were a couple of strains of teaching uh, known as, uh, well, later on there was one called docetism and one called Gnosticism. There, more, more teaching words there. Um, basically, both of those strains of teaching had a problem with the physical, with the material. And so it led them to question or to doubt that either, um, if Jesus was God, he couldn't have come in the flesh because God, the all-powerful, would not deign to take on flesh because flesh is dirty and ugly and bad. So they would say this. And so saying that he has come in the flesh is a particularly strong argument against that teaching. Against that teaching, because it affirms the Son of God was real, that he came in the flesh, that he wasn't a spiritual force, that he was human, that he has died and risen. And this isn't just a statement of intellectual understanding. To say that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, both in the first century and now, is to declare an alignment of one's will to his will. Because if you're saying that the Messiah, the Savior, the sent one from God has come, then what you're also saying is that his way is the good way. That his way is the right way. And you are what to confess it is to say, I am in that path. I am in that way. This is why... It's an effective task. Because you and I, if we are followers of Jesus, have confessed that. We have decided to align our will with Jesus' will. To align our way with Jesus' way. To decide to love God with all our hearts, our souls, our mind, our strength, and to love our and to love our neighbors as well. Even those that we would consider enemies. We have decided that blessed are the poor in spirit. We have decided to agree that blessed are the merciful. We have decided to agree that to lay down one's life for a friend is the greatest gift one can give. Sacrificial love. These were revolutionary concepts in the first century. They are still revolutionary concepts today. And when we confess Jesus, we have said, this is what we agree with and agree to. And the Holy Spirit in us confesses that as well. The Holy Spirit in us agrees that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh with all that that comes with. And here's the thing. Everything that's not from God can't agree with that. It falls apart at some point. At some point, every ideology, every thought construct, every argument that is not from God will fail what it means to acknowledge that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Easy ones. Racism, xenophobia, do not align with the fact that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. I'm going to step into a little bit controversial ground here. Political ideologies, all of them, eventually break down here. That doesn't mean we can't have political ideologies. Please don't hear me say that. But what I'm seeing now is political ideologies have become religious for many of us. Recent studies indicate that people pick churches 
more for whether they agree with them politically than whether they agree with them theologically. But no political ideology holds up. They all break down. They, I mean, I say all of them. The major ones in this country have agreement with God's will in certain parts. But they all break down. They all break down. And, and if we run them through the test, it doesn't mean that we'll reject them fully, but we'll reject them as ultimate. That is key right now, friends. Because our religious devotion to political ideologies is leading to us hating those that don't hold them. I get alarmed. And it scares me when I feel it in myself. When I hear or things come up in me that say something like, so-and-so, if they hold to that political party, they can't be Christian. God forbid. God forbid. Because the test isn't, am I aligned with this political party? The test, for who is my sister and who is my brother, is who can confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. They fail the test. Ideologies that have made it into our midst, like the ends justify the means, or you can be anything you want if you put your mind to it, or um, uh, just get more and more and more and you'll be happy, or if you just achieve this, then you are valuable. All of those break down. They all fail the test. Me. The flesh stuff. Me satisfying my desire to control others in ways that are unloving fails the test. Jesus Christ came in the flesh because it fails to sacrifice for others. And lastly, evil spirits can't align with this. Evil spirits do not like to confess that Jesus Christ came in the flesh with all that it entails. It is antithetical to what they want to advance, which is to undermine that reality. I'm just going to share an example of that one because... I know it might be the hardest one for us to accept that spiritual forces are at work, so I just want to talk a little bit about how that's played out in my life. Uh, about a decade, well, more than a decade ago, let's say 12 years ago, I was sitting at a church service, and the scripture, someone got up to read scripture. And clear as day in my mind, as they were reading scripture, I heard repeated over and over again, that's not true, that's not true, that's not true. And it just alarmed me incredibly. And I realized that had been happening somewhat frequently. And I'd been learning about this stuff. And so I decided to talk to friends about it. And I, Because part of me was like, well, that just happens to me. Maybe that just happens to everyone. And so I told people, hey, that scripture is being read. Do you have a voice in your head every once in a while that says that's not true? And they were like, no. And I was like, that's not normal? No. And they asked me, so what else happens uh, sometimes for you in church service? And I was like, well, every once in a while I just get these like flashes of just violent images in my mind. They take me out of worship. Doesn't that happen to everyone? They're like, no. It's like, huh. And they suggested that we test the spirits. So they did. They said something along the lines of, hey, whatever is bringing up these, uh, this voice in Jaime's head when he's hearing the scripture, and whatever's bringing up these images in Jaime's mind, the source of that, when he's in worship, do you confess that Jesus Christ came in the flesh? Clear as day, I heard no. They cast it out. 
It was done. It was gone. Friends, from that point on, never, never, ever, never, ever, 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 when I'm in church and hear scripture read, do I hear anything? Do I get any thought in my mind that says that's not real? Now I worship with freedom. Now I worship without distraction. It's in the scripture. Modernity sort of stuffs it down. Uh, but my experience has been, it's still at work. I've experienced it in my life. I've seen it in others. I say that to testify that this is not just theory that I'm talking about. And it's also not fantastical or spectacle-ish. That it actually happens more than we're willing to admit. And I can almost guarantee that some of us have had experiences like that and we've written it off. It's like, oh, that's just my mind running away. Or that's just something else. And I understand why you're doing it. But if, you, if we don't have eyes to see where the opposition comes from on all fronts, we won't know that we have the tools to address it and to live without it. Being able to distinguish opposition and adversity from what is true and good is great. Right? It's a great tool. But the Holy Spirit gives us even more than that. Here's what John says about the Holy Spirit in verse 4, or what he says about us. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them. These are the spirits that are not from God. Because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. It doesn't matter how intense the opposition is. It doesn't matter how weird it is. It doesn't matter how normal it is. It doesn't matter how frequent it happens. It doesn't matter how overwhelming it might feel. It doesn't matter how alluring the voice might be. It doesn't matter how tempting the path of the flesh might be or how entrenched the system is. The Holy Spirit in us is greater than whatever gets thrown at us or whatever we throw at ourselves. We have one who is stronger and more capable, and we have access to his power. Jesus has already secured the victory for us on the cross over the forces of evil, and the Holy Spirit guarantees that Christ's victory is ours as well. Is ours as well. The the forces of the evil one particularly might seem scary, Our own proclivities might seem hard to overcome. The systems of the world might seem too big to face. But the one who is in us is greater. And his victory is ours. You and I have the authority of Christ. All right. So what do I want you to do with this? Well, I'm going to you with two images. The first is of this. Sorry. This. There you go. A filter. Here's the thing. Some of us in Tarrant County, becoming very, particularly in Pittsburgh, becoming very familiar with these things right now. <laughs> you know you can take that filter out, pour water in the bin anyway, and just drink it, right? The filter's only good if you run the water through it. It's only good if you use it. So now that you know that there's a test, now that you know that there's a way for you to tell what is from God from what's not, run it through the filter. Run everything that comes your way through the filter. Use the test. Just try it out. The things you've accepted, the things that comes your way. Try it out. And the last image, the, the, the following image I want to leave with you is this. This image is near and dear to me because I remember one morning when I was very young and used to drink, drank milk because I don't drink milk anymore because I'm lactose intolerant. I remember serving myself a bowl of cereal, taking a big bite of that right, with milk, 
and spitting it out because the milk was bad. But then I started smelling the milk. But here's the thing. It doesn't matter if you do that face when you smell the milk if you don't throw it out. So if it doesn't pass the test, throw it out. Don't question it. Don't wonder. Don't try to dabble in it to see if it's maybe borderline. Throw it out. If the ideology doesn't pass the test, throw it out. If the desire in your heart doesn't pass the test, throw it out. If the work, if a spiritual work, if you can't tell whether it's good or bad, and it doesn't pass the test, throw it out. Reject it. Reject it. The Spirit is in us, able to help us tell where the opposition is, and empowering us to claim Christ's victory over it. Run the filter. Use the test. And if it doesn't pass the sniff test, throw it out. Don't hold on to it. You'll live a much freer life. May pray for us. Spirit, you are the spirit of truth, the spirit of life. You are the one who brings peace and the one who guarantees Christ's victory in us. So Lord, I pray that you would pass my words through the filter for people's hearts and souls. If there was anything I said that doesn't pass the filter, I pray that it would be rejected by everyone here, that no one would remember it. And I pray that you would convict me so I would repent. Whatever is from you, God, would it stay? And would we, Lord, when we encounter anything that comes to us, whether its origin is from the flesh, from the world, or from the devil, would we run it through the filter? Would we accept only what is from you? And would we know that in you, we have power and authority to reject what is not from you? In Jesus' name, amen.